0: Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's episode, we'll be talking with New Haven's own Bruce Dittman about two films from the early 1980s that have had a pro- profound influence on the way he watches, makes, and enjoys movies today. Michael Mann's Thief and Martin Bress, well, really, Eddie Murphy's Beverly Hills Cop, have become classics of the heist and comedy genres, respectively, but how do they hold up In 2016, We'll talk with Bruce about what he responds to in both of these films and about what exactly distinguishes Thief and Beverly Hills Cop from the many other crime thrillers and fish out of water comedies to have come before and after the early 1980s. For the second segment of today's show, I'll be joined by WNHH station manager Lucy Gelman and New Haven Independent staff writer Alan Appel for a review of Francophonia, a new documentary by Alexander Sukharov that offers a very personal and yet expansive investigation of the history of the Louvre Museum during the Nazi occupation of Paris in the early 1940s. But first, I'm very happy to welcome to the studio Bruce Dittman. Bruce is chief marketing officer at the accounting firm Markham LLP. He's also the co-founder and co-owner of Meat & Company, a Crown Street sandwich counter, columnist at New Haven Magazine, host of the Outside of a Dog podcast, and amateur photographer and amateurish cameraman. Bruce participated in the 2015 annual 48-Hour Film Project New Haven competition. Bruce, all the way at the other end of the studio, thank you so much for coming in. It's a pleasure to have you on.
1: Hey, Tom. It's great to be here.
0: Okay, so we met last summer during the 48-Hour Film Project competition. Uh, You were a part of Ryan Lequinko's Everyone Leaves New Haven team. Uh, I wonder if we could start there and, and then maybe move our way around your background in movies before we get into Thief and Beverly Hills Cop. So how did you get involved in the 48 hour film project and what was your role on Ryan's team?
1: Sure. So, um, hey, real quick, can you check my mic to headphones? Um, okay. Um, so, um, Ryan, uh, if, who, you know, um, and for those of you who don't, is this amazing human being who lives in New Haven. Um, and Ryan, I think, uh, um, I think this was his second 48 hour, uh, film festival. And he had, uh, really really earnestly tried to recruit me the first year i think i had uh i had obligations family obligations i also was just too scared and um and uh and didn't make it the first year the second year he said he said look dummy you're doing it i said okay but um you know i'm i take still photographs i'm not really a a camera operator he's like you're gonna do great and don't worry about it there'll be lots of other people that'll help you if, if you run um run out of knowledge um that was a half-truth.
0: <laughs> so did he try to recruit you as the cameraman yes. the first time around as well? Yeah. So this, I mean, for people unfamiliar with this project, we've spoken about it a bunch on the show, and it's one of my favorite things that that happens here every year in New Haven. Uh, it is a, a two-day, kind of weekend-long competition to create a short three- to five-minute movie based on a set of you know criteria that are defined at the beginning of the competition, kind of arbitrarily assigned, uh, how to you know incorporate within a genre, uh, use a character name, a uh, a line, and a couple of other criteria, um, and each you know person working in any team has a certain uh, number of you know obstacles that one has to overcome when uh, working in such a constricted time frame. So the actors having to learn their lines, the people writing the script having to write very quickly. What what were some of the challenges of being a Camera operator and, and cameraman in this two day competition. What what was like, kind of unique to your role that was that was daunting or I don't know fulfilling. Sure,
1: both? I mean number one is getting a, a literal room full of friends but some strangers to coalesce around an idea and a methodology and still have them be able to be led by the director E.P. Ryan and then um, in general and then time, heat, exhaustion, and hunger and uh, to a, a, a limited extent sobriety or um, you know are all challenges to getting this done. It's really a remarkable um, experiment. I'm a, I'm like a firm believer in doing things that make you uncomfortable um, insofar as that you'll survive them. Um, and this is one of those things, you know.
0: You know, I I think that's maybe a good transition to another project in New Haven that I know you from, which is your Outside of a Dog podcast. And maybe uh, making oneself uncomfortable is not the perfect way to describe it. But reading, the podcast is all about sharing, you know, favorite kind of intimate works of writing that are very personally affecting to the person reading and kind of exposing yourself a bit to the person you're conversing with in the studio, but also whoever's listening. Um, Is that how you also see Outside of a Dog? and, And also, how did that how did that yeah. podcast come come to be yeah
1: sure so outside of a dog is is a podcast where people come in and read to me things that they love um with very li- few limitation uh limitations one is you can't have written it yourself and in general we don't do poetry in general not not necessarily but in general because i i'm an enormous seuss and and uh, shell silverstein guy but it's enough that's not what we're there to do the other reason for that is that because people are, are much more comfortable with that Part of the the truth and intimacy that happens when people are talking on mic to each other and staring each other in the eyes, as we are now, is uh, comes from the fact that managing the level of discomfort that that brings on, especially for example on the podcast and outside of a dog, sometimes with strangers in in a um, you know for sometimes for the first time in front of a microphone, first time ever hearing your voice through headphones, um, that consumes part of the energy. I can't swear right. We're on the radio.
0: Yes, correct.
1: Okay. So that consumes um, part of the energy that you would otherwise spend on bull, okay? So, you know, that you would spend on artifice or affect. And um, you get this really, um, you get this real intimate experience of sharing a moment with somebody. Um, That's, you know, that's the magic of it for me.
0: And and really one of my favorite things about this show, about listening to any kind of arts-related podcaster program is learning about the different writers, the different artists, the different, you know, works of literature that are important to the people that I already care about. Uh, To get them to open up in a, you know, that kind of specific setting to talk about literature, but in an informal way. Um, I really dig it. It's how I, you know, learn about what I'm reading or watching next.
1: Right. And in a world of um, nearly complete access to the arts, to almost everything, um, not speaking socially, but I'm talking about, Books and writing and and art. What's really interesting is how people interact with that. Um, you know. Uh, so yeah. Well, and uh, you were great, by the way, on the podcast. <laughs> Thank and you. We have been on hiatus, but I do intend to bring it back up and a uh, whole bunch of new writers. I will say, for the record, that I gave you bourbon when you came on my show. I w- I have a uh, a cup of uh, room
0: temperature water. Yes. Well. <laughs> this is the world of community low-power FM radio, <laughs> uh, not the glamour of Baobab uh, Studios. But I'm, I'm eager to get into the two movies that you picked today, uh, Thief and Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, and I also, we did a show like this a couple weeks ago with Ryan LeQuinco, who you also worked with on the 48-Hour Film Project team, in which we talked about three movies that uh, kind of shaped his understanding of what qualifies as good artful, well-made, entertaining cinema. And I'm so interested in you know not just talking about movies that are universally recognized as great and beloved and classics, but also for someone who is involved in making movies in some capacity and thinking about how movies are made, how these movies inspire you and influence you and change the way that you both watch and make movies. So with that kind of hovering over our head during our conversation oh uh, what let's let's jump into the first one because i know you have a, sure. a, a lot I, to say about it
1: if i can just as caveat uh tom and i met on when you were embedded with us yes. for the for the 48 hour film project which was i didn't know you i didn't know what you were doing and um there was this other person there um holding his own camera and and hanging out and i will say a couple things one is uh you hung in the entire time in fact you fared you were one of the who fared best under the uh, fatigue and exhaustion and maintained your sobriety and um, uh, the other thing I'll say is that I thank God you were there because when I was losing my mind and managing my own um, my own challenges which not to get too far into it but was that I was there to do a a specific job and that I had to that I was I was encouraging myself to stay in my lane um, talking about movies with you was, was awesome, and you I, you were you were knowledgeable and a film lover, and it was a, it was a pleasure. So
0: ah, uh, it's I will take that flattery any day. But thank you, Pierce, and I should say that one of the inspirations for doing this type of segment where I talk with filmmakers about the movies that inspire them was listening to you talk about the opening of Silence of the Lambs that yeah. weekend and, and yeah. breaking down shot by shot, Jodie Foster running through the woods and how she's both the chaste and and perhaps the the conqueror or victor or whatever that may be, but thief. Yes, thief. Michael Mann's 1981 crime thriller starring James Caan as a Chicago jewel thief who finds himself beholden against his will to a wealthy financier in pursuit of making that last big score before retiring forever. Kind of a familiar plot in terms of, you know, the the last big score, a criminal with a code of ethics that he are kind of arbitrarily constructed. Maybe we'll talk about that. But someone very reluctant to break that code um, because that is... What keeps him whole? What right. what keeps him sane? Um, so I wonder if we could start our conversation about Thief by talking about the guy at the center of it, um, sure. James Caan. What do you? I mean, what, rewatching this movie, thinking about this movie, what do you think of his performance as the titular thief?
1: Yeah. Well, and uh, in just one sec, you know, while we you know we hear the story about the the jewel thief has got to do one big heist, then go square, and it's obviously a super common trope, you know. Couple of things. This is not the first movie where that takes place. I won't make that claim. Although I will make some claims of other firsts in a minute. But um, we do when we talk about movies that are forty years old or thirty years old, we have to try, and I have to try, and place them in that uh, chronological context. And this is, you know, part of the fun of going back and watching movies where. You know, I, I always, talk, I always for, by way of example, I always use Annie Hall. If you go back and watch Annie Hall, you're like, yeah, 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 I loved Seinfeld. It's like, no, 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 no. None of this happened before this. You know, so while we just, we have to, when we want to critically look at, at film or art in general, we sometimes have to divorce ourselves of our own <clears throat> um, current vocabulary and imagine seeing a mainstream theater, but in the case of Annie Hall, comedy by a famous director turn into animation in the middle of it for no good damn reason. Um, so uh, off of Annie Hall onto Thief, what do I think about Frank? Well, first, um, and uh, so this is Michael Mann's debut film. Okay. And we can talk about him too in a minute, obviously. But one thing I will say is um, uh, I love the casting. So I like James Con. I'm not like a Jimmy Con nut, you know what I mean? But obviously he brings a certain... Um, persona and, um, uh, you know, uh, masculinity, capability, um, gruffness about him as informed by The Godfather and his other right, roles. Right, I think obviously. it's worth saying
0: that he's probably best known as Sonny Corleone right. from The Godfather right. as the kind of impetuous, hot-headed, older, older son right. in the Corleone family. And,
1: and part of the greatness of this casting is he is the opposite of a Sonny Corleone mm. in the sense that the opposite of a wildly violent person isn't a passive is, isn't is a controlled pacifist it's a controlled wildly violent person um so um i love him in this i love him um i think the performance is um uh spare you know i think he shows a tremendous in a in, with a character that's about discipline although i, I mean, I'll not making arguments about something else but on the surface he's about discipline it's a very disciplined performance mm-hmm. you know james so capable of going big you know he's got a great physicality about him he certainly has the respect of the actors and directors around him to do what he wants, probably. Uh, Michael Mann is a, is a very good director and draws a lot of water, but this was his first movie. So you got James Caan, he can probably do whatever the heck he wants. And he didn't. Or maybe he didn't.
0: In, uh, in Roger Ebert's review, he described Khan's performance and the character that he creates in Frank as a lonely, unloved kid who is hiding out inside an adult body and i think that what makes this character unique maybe in the in the context of other kind of crime capers or heist dramas is that this is this is a character led drama i mean we really get to know frank we get to know his kind of intensely kind of uh ambitious professional you mentioned authenticity in an yeah. email that you sent to me that that defines him that code of ethics that that he can really be proud of the work that he does with his hands at, at one point he shouts at leo who's the antagonist in this the the fence the wealthy who's financier amazing by who,
1: the way it's uh robert prosky yes the, yeah. yeah
0: he shouts at him i am the boss of my own body and there are a number of lines yeah. that go throughout that and that james khan he just exudes this physicality but also a complete control over his body until he but, until moments when he loses control But let's look at that a for a minute
1: it, just hearing you say that actually gave me chills imagine james khan this this ultra masculine actor leading man um tough guy i mean that's something that a victim that's a victim's cry that's a a child's cry you know i'm in charge of my own body that's so primal so raw so vulnerable so the the thing that rocks me about this performance and perhaps i'm easily rocked is the vulnerabil- vulnerability in the otherwise overt masculine structured thing so be you know not that you're doing this but before we say like oh here's you know this this you know uh, examination of masculinity and the crime ethos no this is a the thing that jumps out about about frank is this accessible vulnerability, which he demonstrates a number of times. Mm. There's... a
0: Well, mm. I, I was going to say, I think that the... Because I what makes this movie, and I think Beverly Hills Cop as well, a bit <laughs> dated for me, a bit of a very specific to the early 1980s, is it's... With Beverly Hills Cop, it's more homophobia. Here, it's just intense fear of kind of a threat against his masculinity, against these guys who have so... You know, define themselves as uh, providers of families, as capable people, of heterosexual people. And to think that the threat to James Caan's character and to to Willie Nelson, who plays his kind of father figure character, is I mean, it's always rape so it's always raped by other guys you know, and i get that that is a serious thing in prison like that yeah. works within the you know the history of the character created right. but to think that i feel like the number one thing that both these characters are rebelling against is some other kind of bigger man taking away their so masculinity
1: maybe but i'm but i'm um
0: uh you're reluctant to, to I'm, that. Relo-
1: I'm not totally on board with that okay well and i'll tell you why because you know i think everyone's f- not everyone, but the common famous scene from that movie that people references is, is James Caan and Tuesday Weld in the diner. Okay. Now also, you know, you're going to see diners in, in future movies, of Michael Mann, Michael Mann, by the way, is totally unashamed from borrowing from himself. Hmm. Even heat was a TV movie called LA takedown, I think beforehand. Um, and you see plenty of that in the, in this film. Um, but the, I thought that the way that he dealt with the realities of prison, including in the implied his implied rape um but certainly his brutalization whatever it was um was really interesting um and just a note about casting a however old Tuesday Weld was Tuesday Weld from uh if i'm not wrong the life and times of dobie gillis and a beautiful young actress at this time in america you know to bring back a, a mature a mature ring beauty pre botox by the way pre where people look like um Bookie mask monsters as they get older was amazing and brave. Hmm. Uh,
0: I yeah, I, I didn't look up how old Tuesday Well was in this movie. So 81, but and she was a star in the sixties and seventies, right? So she she'd been kind of familiar with early, familiar early face. television, yeah. Um but she I mean she, her character, as affecting as that diner scene is and that yeah. seduction and the I love the the frankness of Frank, how he's he's challenging her to be as as straightforward as he knows right. that he can be. You know, he's saying, I'm, you know, let's get this, you know, small flirtation out of the way. Let's right. start this great romance. I'm a thief. Oh, but, Deal with it.
1: But so, uh, sorry, j- just to to finish that. So that's the scene that everyone talks about. Right. The scene that I love and that is like at the foundation of my sort of thesis about this movie is actually the adoption scene. Okay? Because again, well, you know, so I'm not totally on board that that it's the uh, heteronormativity that is the the, the through line f- for him. Um, it's, you know, Frank is a product of the system. As he says in the scene, he says, I've been in these places my whole life. They're horrible, lifeless places. At which point he demonstrates which I think is the crux. So before I get into what he says, uh, I was thinking about it today, and it occurred to me that, you know, this movie, Thief, is a, is a film about tools. Okay so earlier when i emailed you about the authenticity what i really want to talk about how this movie was groundbreaking because it was the first time that they brought in real technicians so i think ebert might say it or someone else says it like you'll see no stethoscopes here you know because they don't safe crackers don't use stethoscopes okay you know the pink panther uses a stethoscope in fact one of the characters the guy who plays a corrupt cop corrupt cop was a safe cracker um and um he brought on real, uh, real criminals um, who consulted on this. Additionally, the way that uh, Frank and Belushi, or the way that um, Khan and Belushi handle their weapons, this I believe is the first time that they ever brought in real consultant on that. Mm-hmm. So um, this is a huge thing now. You know where people, you know, Saving Private Ryan, they went to boot camp, and Keanu Reeves trains in martial arts for a year before taking a movie
0: you know it's it's so funny that you bring that up because i get the that works so well with the kind of main theme of the film of being kind of technically adept and being very professional but the i'm thinking of the opening uh scene yeah. of of uh of thief which is wordless it's right. about 10 minutes and it is you know the the three thieves breaking into some diamond right. safe uh and It is almost, it's a very artfully shot scene, and it is almost, it's a very stylized one, too. There's, it didn't strike me as a realistic kind of atmosphere, but rather one almost reminiscent of Blade Runner in mm-hmm. its in its darkness, in its wetness, and its kind of dystopian yeah. representation of this urban landscape, but also the intimacy of Frank, his tool, and the safe he's breaking into. Like this is Frank in his element. It seemed like a like a bed, not to go on the sexuality stuff again, but it yeah. seemed more like a, a bedroom scene. Like this was something that we get to see Frank comfortable and himself. Right. Not necessarily under, you know, a, a high pressure uh, heist operation
1: yeah I mean you could certainly you could talk about the intimacy of of a, a crew which comes up over and over again in his movies and nonverbal communication which we we should actually talk about in a little bit that a great gag that they do in the movie but um you know and Frank and his tool is worth examining perhaps on another day but um but yeah the I mean they used real thieves tools and they acted as real thieves would act you don't see what people do like about this film and some other ones that you don't see a lot of the nonsense that you see in other heist caper movies but but to get back about tools okay because I my my assertion as I thought or my my thought as I considered this film is that this is a movie about tools okay so super important in the in the meta sense in the director that they have the actual tools that thieves use that people handle their their weapons their tools the way that people really do um that things happen the, the way they are and <clears throat> For the main character, he spends a lot of time talking about the tools he developed in prison in order to manage his life, right? I have the tools to do this. Here's how you do it, right? The vision board, you do you, reminiscent or, or not reminiscent, but impression of of, um, of uh, uh, heat, you get sensitive of that. You got to be willing to put everything down and walk away, all that kind of stuff. But Frank's also a guy, Frank is a guy who has a lot of tools and a lot of proficiency. He's also a guy entirely without the tools. To operate in the normal world
0: and to think of that collage of his ideal life that he carries around in his wallet everywhere right he yeah. is so incapable because of his own uh misfortune his kind of his own social setting what what has what's been working against him his entire life he's so incapable of realizing this idealized domesticity that he can only carry it around in his back pocket of cutouts of magazines yeah um, that's about that's the only tool he can kind of approximate some kind of normalcy way
1: this is his tool for it right so but so on the first front for tools we're talking about tradecraft right which the director and the consultants go to great length to demonstrate now social tools like i was saying are something that frank entirely lacks um he grew up institutionalized and then spent his adult 11 years of his adult life institutionalized and so for me when i was talking about the diner scene um which is when everyone talks my favorite scene is in the adoption agency where all he wants to do is adopt a baby. And if you remember, he says, you don't got a white kid, I'll take a black kid. You don't got a young kid. And at one point, he says something to the effect of, I'll take an 18-year-old.
0: Right, no one likes the grown-up foster kids. He says a bunch of
1: racial epithets. But he's not, he's being earnest, he's being honest. He entirely lacks the tools to navigate that environment.
0: And the the key line for that scene for me is at the very end, after he's been denied uh, the ability to adopt a child because of his criminal background, and he shouts at the the woman working at the adoption agency, did you grow up in the suburbs? And she says, yeah. And then he lets out this kind of primal scream of, of course you did, because this is the privilege that some people in this world get to start with. And I am not one of those lucky few.
1: Yeah. And I mean, he tries to bribe her. And then, you know, he uses the wrong language to describe the type of kid. But all of it comes from an honest and earnest place of wanting to just have someone in the world to love. He just lacks the tools to navigate the square world.
0: So this movie is over 35 years old, so I'm afraid we're going to give a bit of a spoiler at the end for what it's worth. But this movie ends with... A lot of explosions. Yeah. With, with Frank, kind of blowing up every single bit of private property that he has, that he owns. It uh, goes to the quiet suburbs, and and kills the the various you know wealthier people who grew up in the well, suburbs, perhaps, financiers.
1: It, we can talk more about tools. First, he talks about the emotional tools. These tools he developed in prison. He sends his wife and his child away. Right. He you know he has he gives the, up on, on yeah, the dream. I mean, he yeah. has yeah, yeah mm-hmm. he's got the discipline to say this is over. You got to go and he sends them away. Mm -hmm. And then, like you said, he burns his world down.
0: So we were talking a bit off mic uh, before the show started, how I said that I could see Frank as a Trump voter in this day and age (laughs) because of his intense sense of being wronged by a system of privilege, uh, by an intense sense of his own self-worth and his having created everything that he has just with his own two hands. uh, And the closing kind of destruction scene is an ultimate, you know, rebellion against the system currently in place, with absolutely no thought for what's next. I mean, when he's walking down the way. when he's walking down the sidewalk, yeah. uh, you know, that it's kind of mirroring like a Charlie Chaplin movie, walking off into right. the sunset. But there's no sunset that he's walking towards. He's right. going to the kind the of isolation and emptiness, and probably yeah. suicide or death well,
1: or something. See, I don't know about that because I don't. I don't have quite the same read. He's not destroying this. He's destroying. He's erasing his life. He's starting entirely over. Mm-hmm. He and I think in that for him that's an act of that discipline of employing that tool where you have to be tough enough I'm um, he erased every part of his life i mean this is i i don't know about the trump voter part because and i can't do this i maligning trump voters but um this is a person who uh who has order i think it's like i i don't believe he's as tantrumy mm.
0: as
1: as uh as your read but if i can just close the loop on tools the dramatic twist in this film is is, is the accidental or the, the deceit of accepting Leo, um, who we said it was Robert Prosky, right, um, uh, as a father figure. At what point Leo literally says, I'll be your father, and he gets him the baby, and then one day he wakes up and Frank realizes that he's a tool, you know, and that he's powerless again.
0: So... Actually, before we go any farther, I want to say you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP 103.5, New Haven's home for community radio. And um, We're talking with Bruce Dittman, a renaissance man of sorts in New Haven's social and cultural scene, and we're talking about two movies that had a strong influence on him. So we probably have, I'd say, seven, eight minutes left. Do you want to do Beverly Hills Cop yeah, let's or should we just keep it. riffing on Thief? Is no, no, okay. no, it's okay. Let's, All right.
1: Let's do it. I mean, just in closing on Thief, you know, what does it mean to me as a, a occasional creator of of, of video content? Um, one is that I think it's a perfect demonstration of proper use of authenticity and and you, you highlighted it because man is impressionistic with his backgrounds, but realistic in his foregrounds, Hmm. you know, even a lot of shallow focus and, and, um, the specifics of the tools with sort of like streaked out nightscapes. you know? Um,
0: and even the lake, I mean, the way the camera just kind of floats over the characters off into the water at a moment of tranquility or disruption
1: yep absolutely and it's pervasive through his work and um and so you want to in both of the movies i'm going to talk about it, 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 are going to be about balance and um you want to be in my opinion there without getting mired in the in the the exercise of becoming expert mm-hmm. i want to watch people apparently real people do real things i need to be an expert in what they're doing they need to be an expert in what they're doing um, so that was sort of the thing that I try to bring with me,
0: and I think that not only does Frank exude that aura of expertise, but also Michael Mann in yeah. in the way that he creates the film. I think that's in a debut. That's film. right on. It's yeah, very impressive. Um, I'm interested to see how that transitions over to Axel Foley and Beverly Hills Cop, uh, yeah. because. So many people refer to him as an uh, a promising young cop. You know, I can see that you're a great young cop, but I, you know, you just need to control yourself. Talk about a character who doesn't necessarily have a lot of self control. But um, so, Beverly Hills Cop, 1984, a comedy by Martin Brest that stars Eddie Murphy as Axel Foley, an impulsive young Detroit detective who goes out to L.A. to investigate the murder of a childhood friend. Eddie Murphy, 23 years old. This is after Trading Places, yeah. after 48 hours. Yeah. It's kind of at the tail end of a Saturday Night Live career. Um, you said that this is a great example of how to use a white hot star um, at, at, at his prime. Uh, what, what were you thinking of when you think of using Eddie Murphy well in Beverly Hills Cop?
1: Sure. So, and, you know, you could probably argue that it's one step too f- beyond how to use him, or one step prior. But so um, 48 Hours and um, uh, Trading, trading places. places are both masterpieces in which Eddie Murphy acts as a character. Okay, i don't remember the 48 hours character's name but he's billy ray valentine or whatever and and he's in character he's an actor he's a comedic actor this is clearly not that okay in this he is uh eddie murphy okay doing eddie murphy stuff a lot of a lot of the time also still acting so well i would you know i i don't know you know like i guess the sophisticated in me wants to only watch movies where people only act or they don't you know they're not personalities that is the majority of the movies at least comedic movies we see now you know all of them um and uh um
0: i think that seth rogan and the judd apatow movies are good examples of that where people just they just kind of play themselves a little bit i mean Mm
1: -hmm. i mean and think about um i mean chris tucker doesn't act anymore but chris tucker was a post eddie murphy chris tucker actor Mm -hmm. you know um the uh there are um uh, jim carrey you know it's Everyone loves seeing Jim Carrey when he actually acts,
0: you it, know? what? Right, right, and especially in dramatic works. Yeah. Well, but, um, you know, what so surprised me about Beverly Hills Cop is actually how straight Eddie Murphy plays yeah. the character of Axel Foley so often. Yeah. You're know, talking about him playing, you know, this, the comedy, again, something I'd forgotten, but his comedy is really derived from his verbal dexterity. It's yes. not physical comedy, necessarily. It is the the alacrity and the pronunciation and the way that he can play up this uh, this intense indignation, um, over the silliest of things or serious things, but in a kind of silly, ironic yeah, I context. mean, I think,
1: I, I mean, I like moments, so I'm not going to make like broad statements about his acting ability. I think there are scenes in this where he acts his ass off. I really do. Mm-hmm. I buy some of his scenes when he's talking about Mikey. I think he's playing a comedic action star in the strip, cl- in the strip club scene up until he does the shtick and actually takes the guy down. There are little moments where he's being a serious person. I find he connects with people as an actor in in scenes, especially when he's being sort of um, avuncular with Rosewood, Rosemont. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I uh, and it's it's a fascinating time capsule in the overall arc of comedic um, action to see where both of these things exist. Because he's for sure Eddie Murphy in some of these scenes, and he's Axel Foley in some of them for real.
0: The way that he expresses his... I mean, the the refrain of the movie is Eddie Murphy saying to the Judge Rinald character, I love you. He says that like three or four times. Yeah, And, you know, it's, a, it's something that he had with the character, the friend who dies. They express some Mikey kind Tandina. of homosocial. Yeah, and and the kind of defining characteristic and sound of this movie for me is Eddie Murphy's laugh. Right. That big, so, deep, warm, yeah. so much space. But, in so the big barking
1: laugh. Eddie Murphy laugh mm-hmm. that became famous, you know, pretty much after this. Um that's eddie murphy you know what i mean that's that's him doing eddie murphy and everyone loves it and you want to hear it you want to see that big laugh but he is and, and i think you mentioned this, he's wide open in this movie emotionally like i find him absolutely emotionally accessible lovely warm goofy sure um the type of person especially the type of man that makes other men comfortable when they're being ribbed
0: he's he's a rascal rascalish yeah, a is a rascal. the word that i, I mean yeah. even Little Rascals is not too big a leap because he puts one of his gags is he puts a banana in the tailpipe of a car. I mean, these are the antics of someone who is not actually looking to harm the people that he's pulling stunts on. This is the way that he gets by. This is the way that he acts and interacts with people. So
1: if you, I mean, and let's just take a moment to disclaim that we, you know, the the 80s homophobia that plays into this is obviously totally outmoded and outdated and not good. Um, But excluding that. you know, you can hear, which is also was a huge part of his routine at the at the time, by the way. Um, and um, if you haven't revisited a, delirious. delirious or raw, it's
0: difficult to watch those tough. first twenty minutes. It's tough, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, but um, I don't remember what's going with that. But it, it's worth disclaiming, anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, where was I in this? Well, oh, I know. If you want to know how not to do this, watch the other Beverly Hills Cop movies. Mm-hmm. That's what's so perfect about this movie is. And I don't think like another 48 hours works in this case because he is diminished. The the Axel Foley is diminished and diminished and diminished. And the Eddie Murphy is increased and increased.
0: And also, I mean, when we're talking about Axel Foley, Eddie Murphy playing Axel Foley relatively straight, also think about the, I mean, this is a fish out of water comedy. And what makes Eddie Murphy a fish out of water in this context is that he is a black person in a white, wealthy, conservative, uh, neighborhood of of los angeles but the way that the supporting cast um, treats eddie murphy is was also kind of unexpected in that their adherence to the rule of law right. and like rules of of respect um, and almost chivalry trump their suspicion of this outsider so ultimately they treat him with too much respect they're too honest what eddie murphy needs to teach these characters is is how to lie <laughs> in right. order to the did. super cop scene yes yeah you
1: know and it's funny because that changes and you know that you know over time um based on probably audience reaction characters corrupt not maliciously but they just get corrupted because you want more and more and more of this um and uh you know you end up with turkey's with giant turkey breasts that can't fly anymore um but yeah so i wanted to bring it up because um you know I think that uh, it's undeniable there will always be films where the characters, whether it's Humphrey Bogart or Jim Carrey or Mel Gibson, also, um, who I'm no longer a fan of, but who did a hell of a job with the exact same thing, Lethal Weapon. Um, uh, There are always going to be actors that bring their character to the character. Um, And I thought this was like a perfect moment in that story arc, whether intentional or otherwise. I don't know if Martin Press did it. By the way, do you know the backstory in this movie? Yeah. It was a straight action movie. And um, I, I did some research. They were going to give it to Mickey Rourke, and um, they couldn't get it done. So then Stallone—I don't know if you know this about Stallone. This is very funny. Stallone rewrites every movie he uh, is in, every single one, so he gets writer's credit. Um, one, one Oscar. He's a producer or a writer on every single film oh, he's end. So he rewrote it, and the guy's name was Axel Cobretti. Mm. And for for movie nuts, you may know that soon after this came came a movie called Cobra, mm. which was Marion Cobretti. This became Cobra.
0: I mean, this plays from the very open... We talked about the opening scene of Thief a bunch. The opening scene of Beverly Hills Cop is just straight-up action. I mean, even though the music underscoring, it gives it kind of a a comedic jaunt, but this is, you know, cars crashing into one another over and over in a chase scene through the the streets of Detroit. Um, Oh, there was one other thing I wanted to ask you about, but now I am blanking it. Oh, yes. Um, If Thief and James Conn's character at the center of it is very much about a... A middle-aged man, if not a kind of rapidly aging working-class man who's struggling to figure out how to settle down, how to get out of this too difficult life, Beverly Hills Cop is an ode to the youth of Eddie Murphy. I mean, he just right. exudes this aura that he controls the world, and he—he he is young. He's going to be young forever. He's going to be chasing women and and pranking, you know, these white conservative cops forever. There's just this is such a youthful movie, and I I love remembering Eddie Murphy like that. But also, it's not really a sustainable way to um, to have a career, uh, something to maintain. And, I mean, it's one of the troubles of Americans' relationship with movie stars is that we freeze them at a certain point in time. In youth,
1: right. Yeah. In fact, to your point, part of what I love about, much of what I love about Thief is that it's, about, it's a grown-up movie for grown-ups starring grown-ups, um, you know, for sure. And, um, <clears throat> you know, the bad guys aren't like slick handsome but dangerously handsome soviets and they um you know prosky i love bad guys that look like that um drive recently had um uh the rabbi what's his name uh Alana...
0: i know who you're talking about uh, albert brooks no it's neither- oh albert
1: brooks was it and, you yes. know, i'm thinking about another one albert brooks like i love mushy kind of dad looking bad guys cuz they're real that's real menace mm-hmm. um so uh... and
0: and you get the sense that the the extent of their threat is not necessarily in their physical right. being but rather in the power that they wield right. through their money their influence through their nefarious kind of lack of immor- you know their immorality and um,
1: and to just to quickly dispute what, what we started on in a mild disagreement i'd suggest that they're not sexual rivals of the protagonist mm-hmm. and so you know you know it's a it's a asexual type of uh, menace but so that what i love about that is that those are grown-ups in a movie for grown-ups and like you said, Beverly Hills Cop is really a movie about youth.
0: You gave a little wrap up on Thief when we finished that conversation a little earlier on. And unfortunately, we're, we're very low on time sure. here. But is there anything else on Beverly Hills Cop? That, I mean, when, when people may hear this title, they think of just a, a goofy 80s comedy. Is there anything that, as someone who makes movies, um, that you look to as an influence for how you would like to go for or want other people to remember when making movies
1: sure i mean you got to find the real moment that's when i love this movie it's a fun movie but when i love this movie are those little real moments where eddie murphy still remembers to act in it and he's great Um,
0: what i don't know if you think it's a shame or not but that freeze frame that it ends on with his eyes kind of bugging out i mean the the moment leading up to that freeze frame is great i mean you get they have so much depth to their relationship but then it's Eddie Murphy frozen in time. Well, if you <laughs> want to see
1: the difference but, between two movies, watch the end of yeah. Thief and the end of Velasca.
0: <laughs> Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks it's for been a pleasure. Um, Bruce, where can people learn more oh, about what sure. you do or where you write? Where can people learn more about you? Oh, sure.
1: So um, you can uh, you can find the Outside of a Dog podcast on Facebook at Outside of a Dog. Um, you can find the my New Haven column on the inside back cover of New Haven Magazine every month, and otherwise. I'm the world's easiest guy to find.
0: Bruce Dittman, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot. All right. You're listening to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven coming up next, a uh, review of Francophonia, a new movie by Russian filmmaker Alexander Sokharov. Uh, and but first, we're going to take a very short break and then we will return with the review. Francophonia, a new documentary by Russian filmmaker Alexander Sukharov, pivots around the history of the Louvre during the Nazi occupation of Paris in the early 1940s in its meandering exploration of art, war, and the almost existential imprint of French culture on modern Europe. Sokhorov narrates the entire movie, which shifts from documentary photographs to fragmented Skype calls to dramatic reenactments, but the one continuous narrative that emerges from the movie's various threads recounts the working relationship between Jacques Jojard, a French civil servant, and Franz Wolf Metternich, a German count, who have taken upon themselves to preserve and protect France's cultural monuments during the war. However... The movie feels less like a single story and more like a collage come to life, with each of its component parts animated by a set of questions posed by Sokharov about the timelessness and indelibility of art. What is France without the Louvre? How does portrait painting affect one's relationship to history? Why were French museums deemed worthy by the Nazis but Russian museums destroyed? Allen. Alan. After watching Francophonia, a movie replete with these really big questions, did you find yourself pulled along by its inquisitive, contemplative nature? Or were you longing for answers? Or at least a solid storyline that the movie skirted around but never quite embraced?
2: Yes, you said it all. I mean, you know, that, that, the, those, those last aspirations were not, not fulfilled. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I kind of love looking at the pictures, but discursive, meandering pivoting around. Those are the, those are the verbs that you used. And I mean, I think that's, I think that's the case. And, um, uh, you know, it's billed as a meditation, which I think is not a good advertisement for a movie.
0: Lucy, this movie is all about a museum in a city that you spent a lot of time in and have a lot of love for, Paris and the museum being the Louvre. And it spends a lot of time looking at the actual artworks in the Louvre, both in an historical context, but very explicitly in an aesthetic and personal context. I mean, what do these works say about uh, France, but also about you know the common humanity of people who create art and look to reflect you know important things to them in art? So watching this kind of meditation on the louvre did you feel like you learned something about french culture about french art or is this just about the filmmaker alexander sokarov
3: no i i thought it was about the filmmaker um and i appreciated some of the things i think he was trying to do i didn't find it especially successful i, I did love there's um and and it's very much like what I think his Russian arc is like, although I have not seen that. But which takes viewers through the Hermitage and sort of brings the pieces to life. And um, and I did love this recurring Napoleon character, who stands in front of pieces and says "C'est moi, ça c'est moi." Um, so that that's me. This is me. This is my legacy, because Napoleon had such a role in in the Louvre sort of what it was but it became under his reign and and the pieces that are in that you know had Napoleon not uh commissioned Antoine Jean Gros to paint uh him to paint Napoleon in Egypt with the plague victims at Jaffa which comes up in the movie had uh had he not commissioned um several people to paint his coronation ceremony in the early 19th century the Louvre would be an aesthetically very different place. And indeed, it it might not be the museum that we know today. So I thought that was very interesting, uh, but I did not like the movie. (laughs) Um,
0: I I have to... Okay, I think I like this movie the most of the three people in this room, and there are a couple reasons why. One of them is uh, the... That tension between the Napoleonic impulse and the Marianne impulse in this movie. So you're right. Uh, Napoleon isn't the only kind of historical character who Sokorov finds meandering through the halls of the Louvre, but we also find Marianne. And these two characters, uh, and Marianne being the kind of figure of the French Revolution, uh, a woman who represents liberté, égalité, and fraternité. And those are the only three words that she says throughout. But now, she, she
2: has a great bandana while she uh, <laughs> right, while she says it. Though.
0: And it, I mean, I want at first it seemed a bit silly. That this, one, this allegorical figure just shouting these three words at each work that she looked at. But when Napoleon was brought into the film, I thought this is this is the tension in French culture and in French art that Socrates was trying to get at. The impulse to identify everything as, this is me, me, me. This is something that I have conquered, that this is a representation of my greatness and of the superiority of my culture— but also this is something somehow more democratic. This is something reflecting not just me, the acquirer, the artist, um, the emperor, but also something about everyone, all Europeans and potentially all all people in the world. And I, you you seem skeptical of that, Luce. I want to give you a, a chance to respond. But did you like that, that tension that he pulled out, not just in French history, but in French art and in kind of the way that Europeans engage with art through the the catchphrases of marianne and napoleon
3: yeah i i guess so i i think one thing that we're not talking about is the fact that marianne and napoleon are um they are at once one in the same so napoleon's refrain of kind of say moi also refers to Marianne leading the people through the streets like let's let's not forget who uh who some of the leaders of the french revolution were and who said uh, that they stood for the values of the french revolution so before, you know, Napoleon uh, sort of, well, I, I guess got on his high horse and became a crazy European megalomaniac. He said that he stood for, for the values of the French Revolution. And, and so, um, no, I, I mean I I guess I was more interested in the tension between the liberté, égalité, fraternité and, um, and sort of the reality of the Louvre, which is that without um, imperialism raping and pillaging, it would not be the institution that it is today. Which we can say of so many of our institutions, including in New Haven, the Yale University Art Gallery. <laughs> Alan, this, this uh, uh, <laughs> Do
0: you want Do you want to
2: respond to that, or I, I, the raping and pillaging <laughs> by the Yale University Art Gallery? No, yes, I understand. No, I understand the point Liz is making, but. Um, did you have a question? Yeah, Tom? because so, I'm in the curmudgeon's chair today. So
0: let me—you can still be in the curmudgeon's chair, but I want to frame at least my question and maybe your response uh, a little specifically. So this movie, um, one of its—I mentioned—it's a collage, uh, kind of a, an assemblage of a bunch of different types of shots uh, of camera work. There Diplomatic,
2: are, diplomatically called a meditation.
0: Uh, yes, but but I think that one of the more interesting kind of perspectives on the Louvre. Are these aerial shots of what I assume is a drone kind of floating above the cities of Paris and looking down upon the Louvre and really identifying it in its historical context as a fortress, a fortress meant to protect a civilization and to keep out uh, barbaric civilizations? And I, I wasn't expecting to laugh going into a movie about the Nazi occupation of Paris and about meditation on art. But one line that I really did chuckle at, and I think Lucy and maybe a few other people in the theater did too, is when. Sokharov says, is it possible that this museum is worth more than the entire rest of France? Well, that, <laughs> is, that, it, is,
2: that is the most French question of all time. I mean, that's how the French think about stuff. But, but, but what, uh, what So what's is, your question, so my, Tom?
0: So my question for you is, what is the Louvre? Um, either in the context of France, of this nation state, and what is it kind of independent of a country? Is this something that, is it like its own, is he, is Soker of identifying museums as these kind of own autonomous realms of common humanity, or do they somehow belong to France?
2: Well, I don't think he knows. I don't think he, I mean, uh, it's really, uh, you know, just a very self-indulgent charm bracelet of questions. I don't think he knows. I don't think he's making any definitive statement. And, um, you know, I I, I, I frankly, uh, you know, I mean, I listed some of the questions, you know, who are we without museums? I mean, he asks that. I mean, these are like questions in a high school essays, you know. I mean, why is art, what does this mean? Why is art unwilling to teach us prescience? I don't even know what the question means, let, let alone an answer. And, you know, um, you know, I, when, when you're it, floating
0: it, a lot of questions with no answers, inevitably some of them aren't going to hit. But I found the ones about what do we learn about looking into the eyes of portraits. Well, of people that's who very have come that's before. very nice,
2: uh, and, and you know, and it uh, it is graced by 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 something like that. I, and I don't know his previous movie, but the idea of moving through a museum or the or the, or the Hermitage, and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, the the real passion in this movie comes from trying to make what's inert speak. And he does that, you know. Uh, he does that with his those long, um, those long dolly shots through through the halls of the museum. But he, the but the museum opens up with his with, with these. Uh, and you haven't mentioned all the the, the incredible um, historical footage, World War II footage. And he, he asks the uh, you know the indigo vintage photographs to speak to him to tell him stuff. And he this is a, you know this is like a character. He's a, he himself and his voice is like a character out of Chekhov. I mean he. He's stuck, you know, and what he, you know, it's like the peasants in a Chekhov movie. I mean, they, they're, they're stuck. They need, they're drinking vodka and they need to work. And this filmmaker is stuck. Uh, he he is having meditation upon meditation. He needs a story and the film doesn't have a story. And in fact, there's this bizarre frame of, uh, phone calls that the director makes to Dirk on some ship with, with, uh, containers of art in the Atlantic and, uh, uh, are you okay? Is the art safe? I mean, it's as if that was thrown in there. It feels. It seems to me to give the the movie some drama. And frankly, who's Dirk? Dirk is the guy with the art in the bow, and we never know what happens to Dirk. And I, I have a few. Favorite, I got a. I've got a. A few favorite um, scenes here with Hitler. But, 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 uh, but we'll before come we back get to, to that, I know it.
0: that Lucy, you wanted to respond to something Alan was saying a little <laughs> earlier on.
3: Oh yeah I mean I I think one of the things that uh, the filmmaker is doing was sort of by having this self-conscious narrator who's inserting himself into sequences, but also the the filmmaking decision not to use archival footage of the old Louvre, but to have like a drone flying over Paris and the new the the current Louvre with the I. M. Pei period. So you you know it's the old one and you have to deal with like, like anyone who has ever, uh, you know, Googled the Louvre has to deal with uh, sort of this historical dissonance where they're looking at something that is actually a very modern conception. I, I shouldn't say a modern conception because it's definitely after 1980. So a very contemporary conception. Um, and, uh, and yet the footage is, um, you know, it, is, it, it almost looks like it's been colored in by hand in a way that many early French films were, right? So it has this this weird quality to it that is made to make it look archival, even though you're very conscious of the fact that it isn't archival. But
2: you know that, and that 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 is a method that he uses, Lucy, also in in uh, transitioning from uh, real archival footage, like the the famous sequences where Hitler arrives at the uh, at the uh, Eiffel Tower, and then and then it's very skillfully merged into clear recreations with, with jaguar and uh, the, uh, the the german guy count von metternich and there's something uh there's it's very skillful but it's also something uh disturbing about that it, it's as if it's sort of dishonest it's sort of like hmm. a cheap history channel show or something well, I, I i'm just i'm troubled by this movie
0: I think one, one of the more I think he's getting at a very, you know, obviously troubling time in the history of France. And I think when he asks, you know, what what was it like to be at the Louvre? What happens to a museum under Nazi occupation? And the answer for the most part from what we see is assimilation to the new order. I mean, the way that Paris as a city adapts to their new occupiers is that they assume that this is how things are going to be for the, for the the near future. And so we are not going to stop, you know, playing movie movies. We're not going to stop going to cafes. We're not going to stop looking at art because this is something that we can adapt to. And because the Germans um, in, in their, you know, th- there's no talk about the kind of motivating ideologies of the Nazi party. They're just an occupying war force here, but they are, respect and what's so troubling for Sokorov is that they respect french culture as important to preserve but they do not respect russian culture as important to preserve right but and doesn't... the juxtaposition of the destruction of russian museums um and the preservation of french museums i think for him is a pretty troubling aspect of this history and of how we keep art alive even when we completely disagree with the people who are occupying yeah, he doesn't
2: go into any of that he does and you know the, the horse already left the barn. I mean, the the uh, how was he doesn't explore how how the arrangement was made whereby the uh, uh, it was agreed not to bomb France. Uh, you know the, the the drama of that decision because the by the time the uh, the the Germans come in, all the art has been removed. And there are many wonderful dramatic feature films, Tom, about about the the, the hiding of uh, of uh, great art. Um, the Monuments Men not being one of them, but there's a great film with, uh, with Bert Lancaster called The Train and Paul Schofield. Several wonderful movies about the lengths that uh, the French went to protect their art. This is not that movie.
0: Well, and I don't think it's trying to be necessarily. I kind of appreciated how this is offering the perspective of, um, not that we ever want to really get inside the minds of a Nazi official, but from the perspective of the occupying force um, and people who are not resisting Nazi occupation, what do you do with the art? Um, it's not a particularly you know, noble position. It, it's one that uh, we never want to imagine ourselves to be in and think that if we would, we'd resist uh, wholeheartedly. But this is a perspective that on the story of you know, how art survived, how I, art, survived during World War II and this complete destruction of Europe this is a perspective that I hadn't really thought of before. Like who in the Nazi party was working to try to keep this stuff around. I mean, was that, I know that was actually one of my first responses when I was talking with you, Lucy, after the movie, that it was a perspective on a relatively familiar story that I hadn't heard before. Did you get that impression too, or was it just not, not valuable?
3: No, no. I, I mean, I, I think it's valuable. Um, I, I think the fact that this film was made is valuable, but um. But I didn't find it compelling in the way that, for instance, The Rape of Europa is, is compelling in, in telling that story. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, is let me see if I have anything else in my notes that I want to hit on. Uh, I, You know, it, it seems like this is an experimental movie, one that perhaps does not work for YouTube. But I think, I mean, any time you go into a theater and get to think about the history of, of art and war and Europe, <laughs> I don't know. I, I find I'm, I'm not making too strong you a defense it of this redeeming. movie. Um, I found it kind of refreshing in its experimental approach to telling a story that I kind of knew the contours of, but didn't know in the way presented here. Yeah. So I appreciate that this movie exists. I get that that maybe you two do not.
3: No, it it was fine. I I think um I think if you want a campy waste of an hour and a half of your life, you should go see this movie.
2: Whoa. You know, it, it, speaking of camp, I don't agree with that adjective. But you know, he, he there is a there is a sequence when when uh, there's that's the silent footage when Hitler is standing before the Eiffel Tower and his lips are moving. And d- did I? It's as if he was looking for directions, like where's and and it and and somebody put the words in his moving lips. Where's the Louvre? Where's the Louvre? And then I believe he looks
0: over his shoulder and says, "There it is." Yeah, <laughs> it does I look mean, a little you know, th-
2: that to me was one of the high mm-hmm. points. Also. Also, a, a striking visual moment. I'm
0: sorry to interrupt. I just have to say, you're oh. listening to 103.5 FM WNHHLP LP at the top of the hour. So I got to give a quick little station ID. Uh, New Haven's home for community radio. Again, that's WNHH LP
2: FM.
3: 103.5 FM New Haven.
2: Right, and the program <laughs> is Deep Focus. And I think that's exactly what's missing from this movie. It's a meditation, but there's no depth to it. It's It, 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 um, it, it, so, it so jumps around that it gives the uh, it gives the feeling of um, of wisdom without delivering the goods hmm.
3: I think that's a oh this is your show
0: I know are you gonna wrap it up <laughs> yeah. I, thought, I, was. <laughs> I think that is a good a good spot to stop so that's uh, Francophonia a new movie by Alexander Sakharov playing for maybe one more day at the movie theater in downtown New Haven um, Alan Lucy thank you so much for coming on the show and, and chatting about this movie Thank you
2: Tom My pleasure.
0: All right. We will catch up with you next week for another episode of Deep Focus.